0: Hello and welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw, your host for this season of the podcast, and I'm excited to bring you today's episode where we're going to be discussing women in heart failure. Specifically, we wanted to talk with a few very accomplished cardiologists in the field of heart failure to discuss perspectives on the issues of not just diversity and inclusion within our specialty, but also the role of societies like the Heart Failure Society of America. So we're joined by four very accomplished individuals for our discussion today. Our guests are Dr. Sharon Hunt, Professor Emeritus at Stanford University, Dr. Nancy Albert, Associate Chief Nursing Officer at the Cleveland Clinic and immediate past president of the Heart Failure Society of America, Dr. Mahazureen Ginwala board-certified practicing transplant cardiologist at Sutter Health, and the chair of the Women in Heart Failure Committee, and Dr. Celia DeFilippis, Heart Failure Fellow from Columbia University, who's also a member of that committee as well. Thank you all for joining us today. So like I mentioned earlier, I'd like to frame the conversation today from a few different angles, including the training and early career perspective, the, societies, the Heart Failure Society and the committee's And then also broader than the society as a whole, the impact of the pandemic on women in our field. So maybe we could start with Celia. One of the issues within cardiology has always been this is a very male-dominated field. And about 33% of heart failure fellowship spots in in the U.S. are held by women, which is greater than the non-heart failure training positions. What do you think heart failure as a field or as a specialty is doing right? in terms of recruiting and retaining talented women? And what do you think could be improved upon?
1: Thank you, Kevin. And thanks for the invitation to be here today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. As was mentioned, from 2019 to 2020, 23% of all cardiology fellows were women. And in that same year, 34% of heart failure fellows were women, and of course, this is significantly improved compared to subspecialties like electrophysiology, where only 10% of trainees are women, um, and interventional cardiology, where 13% are women. And I think, you know, I look forward to hearing other people's thoughts on the topic. But I think one of the things that has drawn me to the field of of heart failure specifically has been the the longitudinal relationships that we have with patients the collaborations with other disciplines and I think that this is something that has drawn women to the field and hopefully will continue to draw women to the field. I think one of the things for me that is central to any attempts to Bring women to medicine in general, I think it has a lot to do with seeing people like you doing what you're doing. And when I was an internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital, I actually thought I was going to do gastroenterology. Um, And I rounded as uh, an intern and second year resident with uh, Dr. Eldrin Lewis and Dr. Lynn Stevenson, um, and really just seeing their approach to patients. And so for me, I actually made that change to do heart failure and said, I'm going to do cardiology as a means to heart failure. And I think one of the great things that I've also seen in my training as a general fellow and a heart failure fellow, at least at at Columbia, there's really many women heart failure cardiologists and transplant cardiologists. And I think that that is really inspiring. And I think a lot of that is attributable to the great. Women who have come before me. And I think that in that way, it's a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy because I think the more women we see, the more it inspires us to know what is possible. And so, having worked with women, amazing women like those like Dr. Stevenson, and then being mentored by people like Dr. Kittleson, just from afar, and many others Dr. Jessup, Dr. Lindenfeld, and you really just, I think something about the spirit also of those women is just so inspiring. And you say, I want to be like them. And so I think one of the things that we have continued to do well in the past is is really encouraging that collaboration. And I, not to play into any stereotypes, but I do think that there are some features about the characteristics of heart failure cardiologists that are very appealing to women. Of course, we still have ways to go. I know we still have had a lot of spots that were unmatched in the most recent match for heart failure. And I think doing that starts with efforts to expand the pipeline as it always is medical school and internal medicine and cardiology. But I think it's a really exciting time to be in heart failure with all of the medical advances, new mechanical support technology, know, the recent xenotransplantation. And so hopefully also those medical advances themselves will draw in some new people for the next coming years. And hopefully this conversation will help to inspire people for why heart failure is something they should choose.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mazarin, do you have any thoughts on the issue?
2: Yeah, first of all, thanks, Kevin, for this opportunity. Really excited to be you're part of this wonderful group of women. As Cilia mentioned, although cardiology is a male-dominated specialty, the specialty of heart failure definitely appeals to a higher proportion of women, fortunately. So as she mentioned, according to the 2018 GME report, women represented 33% of advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology trainees compared with 23% trainees in cardiovascular disease and much lower percentages in electrophysiology and interventional cardiology. However, despite this higher female representation, there's a strong perception of gender-based imbalances, with regards to salary, institutional and organizational, leadership positions, mentorship, and academic promotions. So what we're doing as part of the Women in Heart Failure Committee at the HFSA, since the inception of the committee in 2020, we have actually taken several initiatives to improve awareness and advocate for women Um, And in turn, hoping to improve recruitment and retention. So some of these include having a session specifically targeted at the Heart Failure Society of America annual scientific meeting, which is focused on women. We also have a networking reception. We have a speaker to hopefully um, address some of these issues and discuss these, the membership, including work-life balance, mentorship, career development, and some of these other important issues. We've currently submitted a proposal for a leadership retreat to hopefully help women with their career advancement, as well as we're planning to organize webinars to discuss some of these women's issues and we're also working on local events To allow women from academic and private practice to meet up and share best practices and support each other. And hopefully, this will help with networking, burnout, and improve retention and recruitment in the field. And lastly, we're also working on several initiatives to improve awareness regarding workforce discrimination and unequal financial compensation. So actually, we have a Twitter chat planned just next week on the 26th on gender differences in payment amongst cardiologists if uh, people would like to attend. So again, I think there are several avenues to help this and we're continuing to uh, work on these issues.
0: That's great. And Nancy, do you have thoughts on the issue as well?
3: I'll I'll say that I think both Celia and Mazarin did a great job of talking about the whole issue of cardiology in general and what is going on in the Heart Failure Society of America in terms of the Women in Heart Failure Committee. I could say that I do agree that there is still inequity in terms of men and women in cardiology. And we see it in a lot of regards, not just in academic promotions and compensation. We see it even in arenas like Somebody's setting up a annual meeting and the majority of speakers are all male. So we really do need to see diversity and equity. I can say that from the Heart Failure Society of America viewpoint, we have really paid attention to diversity and equity in the last few years. We have a policy on it now and we follow the policy. So we're very careful about it. When we make decisions about board appointments, committee appointments, chairs of committees, task forces, we look at. At diversity in a few ways. Certainly, gender is an important way we look at diversity, but we also look at race, work role, and also career status. Is it an early career person? Is it a late career person or a mid-career? We want to make sure that we're really having the gamut because we know that early career people can learn from and grow from people who've been at it for a while and meet people and have new mentors new colleagues that they can gain new experiences from. And so it's really important that we are careful in, in making those kind of decisions. Even when a writing committee is put together, we look to see, was it a topic that involves nursing or pharmacy? And do we have representatives from those work roles instead of just all cardiologists. So we're really trying to be careful in many regards. And in many of those, it does involve women. So I think we're gonna see more and more down the road where diversity will be more transparent, first of all, and then we'll be able to actually see that diversity in terms of growth.
0: That's wonderful. It's always nice to hear how many active efforts are being done from the large societies because it really does make a difference. Sharon, you've had a very long career at Stanford, and you've probably seen many a trainee come and go. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this issue that everyone's already commented on.
4: Well, uh, thank you, Kevin. I, I've i been listening. The other three participants have made some incredibly good points about things that attract people to our field and things that keep them, and about things that remain as problems in terms of diversity and equity. And I know people are working on them, and people nowadays are very, very conscious about diversity and equity. And I think 10 years from now, that'll be a lot better. I came into the field a, a long, long time ago when it wasn't women versus men, it was just people versus no people. And I Came into it because it provided an opportunity for longitudinal care, as Ursula has said. And it was really fun. It was not because, and you all know, it's not because of an easy lifestyle. It's not. There's long hours, dreadful problems, et cetera. But it does provide the kind of patient care that a lot of us really like. And probably a lot more women than men prefer to provide rather than being a technician. You mentioned electrophysiology as one thing. Uh, I have great respect for EP people, and I'll be. for the most part they're technicians and don't get to know patients and we have to what else can i say how do we attract more women to be other than the intrinsic attractiveness of the field i'm not sure we attracted a lot of women at stanford over the years partly because we had a fellowship directors, uh, first myself, and more recently, my colleague, Kieran Kush, who are women, and it, it just seemed very women friendly. I can't speak to Columbia or the Cleveland Clinic but I think Mazreen may confirm that Stanford is a very comfortable place for women to be and train. And you look for that when you go out at, you know,
2: into getting a real job after training. Absolutely. So what else can Having- I say? Having Sharon as one of my mentors has been really crucial to my career development. So thank you, Sharon. And I completely endorse that Stanford and several institutions are really great with promoting women and helping increase recruitment for women in the field.
3: So I think, I think it's really interesting. All, all of you have kind of had this some core themes that seem similar. You are aware of other great women leaders in your field and you gravitated to them when you could, whether it was in training or in, a, in your career path. You can tell stories a little bit about what you appreciated and what you liked. And if they can resonate to others that are listening, it may help others decide to take the same path forward. So I think it's really important as women that we do a better job over time of volunteering, making it known that we're interested in being involved, whether it's on a committee for an organization or in our hospital, so that people can know who we are and know our value and and see us in action and understand that we can get the work done just as well as any man can get the work done. And then also share those stories and engage others and help them up front to understand where women can go in the field so that others will want to take that same path. Down the road,
0: I think one of the other things that I've heard is what you touched on, Nancy this idea of being able to identify basically people you want to be like. I want to be like everyone has mentors, everyone has people that they look up to and try to emulate whatever stage you're at professionally. And one of the things that I think the society has done a very good job of that you mentioned earlier is not just emphasizing this issue of diversity across all the different domains you can have diversity, but also making sure that women are welcomed and that women are really put on platforms for everyone to see i saw it even at the last scientific meeting the panels were very diverse and there was always a good job of making sure that there were people from across the country from across the sort of career spectrum and i think that makes a big difference because whatever stage of career you're at you, you need to be able to look to the next stage, hopefully, and identify people that you really look up to.
3: I'm glad you noticed that, Kevin. And I would ha- I'd have to say that it is work to make that happen. So no matter if it's your hospital you're talking about or wherever your workplace is or an organization, there has to be somebody behind the scenes who's really making a concerted effort to pay attention to that, because it's so easy, especially, for example, planning a meeting. You have your list of people you want to invite to speak. The first speaker can't make it. They're on vacation or there's a honeymoon involved or something going on. And so the next person in line turns out not to be either the same sex or the same career level or the same gender, the same race, I was going to say. So, you know, you you want to make sure that you're continuing that diversity, even when there's impediments to moving it forward in a natural way.
0: And one of the other issues I think that's come up is that I think has come up even a little bit more with the pandemic is this idea of retention, right? And keeping people, keeping people in medicine, keeping people, good people within cardiology and keeping people in heart failure. And I'm not sure how it is at your institutions, but at a lot of places, a lot of hospitals, there's a lot of turnover right now, right? Across everyone that works in healthcare. people have been walking away from healthcare, I think at an accelerated rate over the last year, two years, and I'm sure it disproportionately has impacted women. So I'd love to hear thoughts from anyone on this issue of, of how the pandemic has impacted people's ability to not just work, but also, you know, take care of their families.
4: I'm not in any position to comment, but if I were a young person with small children, I'd sure be thinking about walking away from medicine at this point. I don't blame them.
3: So in in that same regard, this is Nancy, I I would say that, you know, um, when hospitals try to improve flexibility to make it work for women who may have kids at home who need to be schooled, especially when the schools keep canceling live classes and now you have to do it from home again. And then we need to remember that oftentimes women are not only taking care of kids, but they're taking care of their adult parents at this point in their careers, depending on where they're at. So we need to have flexibility in working from home, flexibility in schedules, wellness programs so that they can stay engaged and bring that stress level down a little bit and certainly providing services or making, if if the services cannot be available locally, just helping people be aware of what's available out there in their community so that it could be easier for them to shift into it if they need to. I think that we have lost a lot of a lot of people in our healthcare setting in the last year. And I would say it wasn't so bad early on, but in the last Four months, the number of retirements has been astronomical and totally unexpected. I mean, we knew that the, some people were getting into their mid-60s, early 70s, and maybe they'd retire, but they never mentioned it, never talked about it until recently. So I think that times are different now and that healthcare systems are really going to have to step it up with programs and services and Things they could offer or do to either bring people in and then to retain them over time. It'll be interesting to see where we head in the next few years. Yeah, this is Masri, and
2: I completely agree. I mean, um, this mm-hmm. is just such a rapidly changing landscape over the last couple of years and continuing with several challenges clinically, academically, research, and of course, on the personal and family standpoint. And we've seen issues with staffing, and it's kind of like a roller coaster right, things improve and then they get worse again. But I do think, I guess, the most important thing at this point is to really be flexible and adapt with this rapidly changing landscape as an institution and as an organization and try and uh, be supportive and flexible towards the needs of the healthcare workers. And I will say at least we, we do have Some improvement with the world becoming a little bit more uh, united, you could say, with virtual meetings and virtual communities and social networking, more on uh, media and increase in collaborative uh, research opportunities, as well as, of course, telemedicine with our patients. So I guess we just, I think, have to be really adaptive and supportive during these times.
1: Yeah, I think jumping off of that, I would say I think burnout is is definitely, I think even before the pandemic, we, you know, have increasingly recognized the role of burnout and the importance of wellness and support for, for trainees, which at least I I can speak to. And I think in the setting of the short staffing and just the length of the extent of the pandemic and kind of the all of the the roller coaster that has been these last two years, I think being able to speak to other people about that, to have some self-reflection to find people who are going through similar things and try and share strategies that work, I think can also be a way for us to cope both from the individual level and then of course evoking change at the institutional level or the cultural level. And I would agree with respect to the to social media, I really think for me, not just in the pandemic, but with in general, in terms of you know getting to know all of these amazing women and heart failure Social media for me has really been a way to form these new relationships and to strengthen pre-existing relationships. Even people that I haven't yet met in person, hopefully at one of the upcoming meetings we'll be able to meet safely. But I think it's been a real source of support and a source of mentorship and a source of community. And so I think that is one one silver lining of people coming together in that way.
4: So Sharon, I I think you guys have made Fantastic points. I would just comment at the organizational level, the the heart failure Society, in my mind, is one of the standout societies that provides consciousness of and help with the diversity that we need. And I would really give them very high marks in terms of their help. And that includes you, Nancy, and all of
3: your predecessors. Thank you very much. I would say it's a team effort and it's again it's visual management and awareness and a constant diligence in paying attention to those kind of details so that we can make sure that we continue on and move forward. I think it was Celia who mentioned maybe or maybe it was Mazarine who mentioned we're not maybe being able to do research and carry out the same functions or roles we did before because we are maybe now having to be called to our clinical role. And I think it it may become the The needs of different organizations around the country, whether it's Heart Failure Society or others to try to help because NIH funding has gone down at the same time so that we could ensure that there's greater equity and diversity in being able to obtain grants and being able to move our professions forward. So I'm looking forward to seeing how organizations and hospital healthcare systems really help to make that happen internally.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of over, overlapping themes here, particularly just that honestly relies just on resilience, right, staying resilient during, during times like this. And Sharon Hunt, you made a comment earlier, it stuck with me where you said, if you were a young faculty member now that you would consider walking away, I have to pick your brain just a little bit more because I'm sure everyone's thought about that at times, but is there something specific or what, why, I'm curious why you mentioned that.
4: I only mentioned it because it it occurs to me as I see, I don't know anybody here at Stanford who has walked out on the profession yet but and i have in the sense that i don't do a lot clinically anymore and i'm really glad that i don't and if i didn't you know if i didn't have to do anything i'm pretty sure i'd be very happy so that's the only reason it's it's very personal but it's gotten to be just too difficult to keep up And we have very good people who are easy to get along with and supportive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe I would just ask for more support. I don't know. Fortunately, I don't have to make that choice.
0: I want to give anyone a last, anyone has any last thoughts on the issue before we wrap up? I think we've touched on it from a few different angles, but anything else you'd sort of like to add to the conversation? Because, I'm glad we're able to have these conversations. And like I mentioned earlier, it's nice to be able to talk with very accomplished people sort of across the country and across the career spectrum. Any last thoughts? We'll we'll go round robin. How about that? We'll we'll start with Celia and then we'll go way out.
1: Thanks, Kevin. You know, for me, I think, and this is going to sound cliche, but I really think at the end of the day, for me, it's just about the patient sitting there talking to patients about whether they're going to get a transplant, which can Dramatically change their life, or an LVAD, or whether it's going to be trying to get them home so they can have a peaceful death. And I think sometimes thinking about that can be a heavy burden to bear. But I think it's been so rewarding for me. And I've been just so lucky to work with so many amazing women and men. And I hope that people who are listening whether they're considering heart failure or whether they're already in the field, can be reminded of those moments of why they went chose what they chose, and all of the excitement and the rewards that it brings. And for anyone who is interested, I'm always in heart failure, happy to to chat about my experience more. So I think it's a privilege for me to be here talking with all of you, hearing about your experiences and you know, just looking forward to, Hopefully seeing some of you in person at the next HFSA annual meeting and continuing the the work that the society and the committees and and everyone in terms of making
2: the workplace a better place for for women and for everyone. Yeah, I can go next. So completely echo what Celia said. It's truly an honor to be part of this great group and to be part of this podcast, trying to inspire more women to get into our field and to stick with it. I even 10 years out of my heart failure and transplant training, I'm so excited to come to work every day. And I still feel that it's, it's a very fulfilling job that we do taking care of our patients and getting them better, and even if they don't get better, I'm giving them those options to really live a good quality of life. As far as I think being a woman in this field, I think things are improving every day. And I think we have so many great mentors and sponsors potentially and support. And I think for women who are interested interested in volunteering their time for mentorship within the HFSA community or who are looking for mentors, you know, I'd encourage them to reach out. I'm definitely available for mentoring or, you know, just feel free to email me if we can be of help in any way. So thank you for uh, this. And it's just been a great chat. Thank you, Nancy.
3: Well, first, I, I'd like to say, you know, we've all heard the saying, strengthen the numbers. And so when I think about- about women in heart failure, we do have women in heart failure, and we've got really great women in heart failure. So it would be wonderful if they would join HFSA and other organizations that they're interested in, and, and then get, the, get on committees. You know, Mazarin has done an ex- excellent job of getting the Women in Heart Failure Committee up and running, first as a task force and now as a committee. She's been proactive. She's Her and her team have put together programs, as you heard her talk about, for the annual meeting, many committees kind of sit back and, and talk and discuss, but never take action. And this committee has really moved forward in taking action. And it really helps because when you hear the women's viewpoint and you can hear about career advancement and needs and desires and hopes, I think that helps everybody to consider what what the current state is and consider where we can be. So I'm very hopeful that our future will have greater equity and diversity and including women in cardiology and that we'll all be in a better place, I guess I could say, in terms of loving our jobs and getting more equity and getting more women to come into the roles.
0: That's great. And and Sharon?
3: That was great summary,
4: Nancy. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I would agree that we're in a great field. I say heart failure and transplant because I do quite, quite predominantly transplant. But the opportunity to get to know patients and provide longitudinal care is something that you just don't get in other fields. And I think it's, I, I won't say uniquely suited to women, but very suited to women. I too would be more than happy to talk to our email with uh, anyone who is uh, interested in talking about the career. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I agree. Thank you again. All
0: right, well, th- Thanks everyone for joining today. You know, I re- we, all the listeners really appreciate your time. So thanks for taking time to chat. and. Just to wrap up, thanks, thank you to our audience for listening today. For more information on advances and late-breaking news and heart failure, subscribe to the podcast, find HFSA on Twitter, find the Heart Failure Beat podcast online. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.